Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another Crusonia Conversations. We are so excited to have everyone here with us today. Uh, and we are here, as always, uh, having a forum where entrepreneurs, experts, and investors can explore changes in the global food system. I'm Sarah Mock. I'm your host for today's discussion. And today we're talking about food and connection. Now, food is one of our most basic needs for survival, but it is also so much more than that. The importance is more profound among millennials and Gen Zers, perhaps than any other generation in modern history. But why is that? And how will those generations positively impact and lead the creation of a new and healthier food system? To help us dive into these questions, we're joined today by Eve Turo-Paul and Rob Trice. Eve focuses on the intersection of the digital age, food trends, and well-being. She is the author of Hungry, Avocado Toast, Instagram Influencers, and Our Search for Connection and Meaning, which discusses how the digital age has impacted millennials and Gen Z and influences their relationship with food. And Rob, of course, is the founder of Better Food Ventures, a company that invests in businesses harnessing the power of information technology to create better food systems. Rob will provide insight on how data-driven information innovations in this area, often propelled by millennials and Gen Z, is making the promise of a better food system real and how that aligns with consumer demand. Now, before we get into this live conversation with our panelists, I just want to mention for everyone following along at home uh, that if you would like to ask a question at any point during this presentation, uh, and with that, I'd like to hand it over to Rob. Thanks, Sarah. Uh, and Thanks for organizing this, Crisonia. This is going to be a lot of fun. Uh, Eve, I'm going to throw you a curveball. I was thinking about this over the weekend that the first time you and I met yeah. was the first time you had ever actually spoken to an audience about your first book. It was over summer of 2015, I think, right? Yes, it was yeah. the summer of 2015. Yeah, um, and actually, and I think Tim West, who's also on, he was, he was one of the people who was coordinating that. That's exactly so. right. Yeah. You, you've been uh, a core part of my career since its infancy. So thank you, Rob. Yeah, um, Certainly. <laughs> so for those, for those who have not read Generation Yum, do you want to just kind of distill that first book and maybe even give a little bit of background about why you wrote that first book? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I started off my career doing the traditional food writing things like restaurant reviews and recipe development. I worked for Mark Bittman uh, for a year who is the New York Times food writer for about 25 years. Um, but I am a millennial. I graduated from college in 2009. I was not interested or passionate about food at all while in college or high school. And then about a year later, I found myself living in New York City. 2010, peak recession, broke, in graduate school, because what else were you going to do in 2010? Um, and spending my discretionary income, the little that I had, on food experiences. I was choosing to spend my money on underground dinners and fancy cheese at Whole Foods rather than taxi cabs uh, or sending my laundry out, which in New York City is, is one of the few luxuries that you can do. Um, and I really started to ask, well, why? Why is it that not just me, but those around me, uh, we're doing the same things. Why this generation that are the guinea pigs for our lives tethered to screens, this digital generation, why are we turning to these analog activities? Um, why are we watching the Food Network? Why do you want to watch somebody on TV cook something that you're never going to eat? Uh, and I became completely obsessed with this topic. Uh, I ended up talking to people uh, across the nation 
um, about their relationships to food. I spoke to people who make lists of restaurants they want to try all the way to those who, you know, said, oh, bless you, Rob, <laughs> uh, who said, you know, mom and dad, I don't want to be a doctor or a lawyer. I want to be a craft brewer or an organic farmer. Uh, and then I talked to the leading luminaries in the food scene. I, I had the pleasure of speaking with Anthony Bourdain and Mark Bittman and Marion Nussel, those who have been in the industry for a while and asked, you know, what do you think's going on? Why do we have this young food movement? Um, and that became my first book, Generation Young. Uh, but the more I dug into this subject, the more fascinated I became. I've now been studying it for basically a decade. I'm still learning new things. I am still endlessly fascinated um, by this area of human behavior and anthropology. Well, okay. So then the key findings from Generation Young was that relationship of like, why are people, like, what did you, what was the key finding yeah. that you got from that about like, what is it about food that matters yeah. to Gen yeah. Z? I think, you know, I think a lot of people are like, oh, well, you know, you can take pictures of food with your phone now. And that's what it is. It's like, well, okay, but you can take a picture of anything with your phone. You can look at anything, capture anything, talk about anything. What is it about avocado toast and ramen and matcha lattes? Um, and the, the more I dug into this, what I actually ended up finding is that our, our obsession with food is in direct relationship with the record high rates of depression and loneliness and stress and anxiety uh, for millennials and now Gen Zers, unfortunately, as well. And, and I think when you wrote the book, you also found out that this wasn't just a Gen Z thing, right? And it right. wasn't just an American thing, right? People kept reaching out to you and be like, I don't know, like you talk about some woman in Korea who's like, Yes. This is this is my life, right? Yeah, exactly. So so Gen Yum was very much specific to the US. It was very specific to millennials. That came out in 2015. Then my career changed, um, thankfully, and I had the great opportunity to travel around the world talking about the research that I'd done. And very quickly thereafter, I heard from people saying, this is not an American trend. This is not a millennial specific trend. This is happening everywhere. It's happening across generations. Yes, it's being driven forward. Um, it's being catalyzed mainly through millennial dollars. Um, but what we're really talking about here is a digital age generation. Um, so I think you're a part of that, Rob. <laughs> there are many Gen Xers, baby boomers who feel and act like quote unquote millennials uh, when it comes to their food behaviors. But yes, I had the great opportunity to present some of my work when I was um, at Google in Seoul. And this young woman came up to me after the presentation and she was like, what you were talking about is so me. How did you know that was so me? Uh, sidebar, she's still a really good friend of mine. <laughs> um, this young woman, um, her name's Yunji, and uh, she shows up in Hungary. But, but part of um, you know, that moment for me was sitting back and realizing that a lot of the human experience, global culture has become homogenized over the last 15 years with the introduction of the internet. Uh, Hyunji's life is not so terribly different from mine, even though we're on opposite sides of the planet. We are consuming a lot of the same news. We have a lot of the same pressures and anxieties because we're trying to keep up with our email. And we're, we're also not using our bodies. We're creating PowerPoint presentations and on screens a lot of the day. Um, and those commonalities are driving uh, commonalities as well in food culture around the world. And that's what I've spent the last five years now researching. I took that topic, uh, traveled around the world, uh, also kind of broadened my scope from millennials uh, outward 
um, and wrote all about those findings in Hungary, which just came out this past summer. Cool. So talk to us a little bit about Hungary. Okay. <laughs> um, and, and make sure at some point we talk about Maslow's hierarchy. Okay, I'll get there. I'll get there. there. Can you tell that Rob, Rob's been listening to me talk now since 2015, so he, he could really be doing my job for me, which is <laughs> a great thing to have. Um, but so the, the topic became more broad, right? And what do you do when things become really broad? You still need to find a structure to understand things, right? Because this was no longer just about millennials. It was no longer just about uh, the U.S. And my goal before I really dug into um, this global trend was to really figure out, well, what are the through lines here? Why is this showing up around the world? Um, and what I landed on is that because food is being used as a coping mechanism, um, it drew me into the world of well-being. Because the question is, what is it that we need to feel well? And what is it about our current environment that makes us feel unwell? And how are people using food as a way of mitigating uh, those rising rates of depression, loneliness, anxiety, et cetera? Um, and a lot of that really boils down to the structure of Maslow's hierarchy. So for Hungary, I started with Maslow, but I, I ended up actually doing a pretty in-depth analysis of, of well-being philosophies, um, not just in psychology, but also in, um, in religion, um, in, in psych, in anthropology, in sociology. And it was really interesting. It, like to map out all of these different theories from neurologists to Buddhists to, you know, Maslow from the 1950s, all of these theories of well-being fall within these three buckets, which are our desire for control, our desire for community, and our desire for purpose. And once I identified those three things, I began to see the world in a completely new way. And so hungry is broken up into those three sections. And I map out how the biggest food and lifestyle trends globally over the last decade are all uh, a reaction to one of those core human desires. Hold on, hold on. Let's 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 go double click on control, for instance. Like, what are we talking about? We talk about food decisions and control. Well, yeah. Give us a couple examples. So, all of us have an inherent desire for safety and control, right? This is this is evolutionary. Uh, we all need to feel like we're going to make it to tomorrow. Um, when it comes to food specifically, or actually, I'm going to make it more broad than that. When we feel as though we're out of control, we want to find structures, ways of feeling more in control. So I think today is a great example, right? Who the heck feels like the world is in control? I think uh, a sense of, of chaos is at an all-time high. Um, unfortunately, a sense of chaos was already really high prior to COVID. Uh, and so we have been seeing over the last decade, actually, reactions to that in people trying to categorize things, saying yes and no, the rise of restrictive diets. We are seeing people say no to products that they don't understand. Uh, the GMO movement is a big, big part of this. Um, I've heard from so many people who say, oh, why do you millennials, you know, you don't trust science. And once I was able to really dig into this, what I realized is the rejection of GMO, it's not about the science at all. It's about a lack of understanding of the science. And when things are crazy and chaotic, we don't want things in our sphere that we don't understand. We wanna grasp the simple things, the transparent things. Um, a lot of these keywords that have come up over the last decade are people just trying to feel like they're back in the driver's seat. Um, can you just very quickly talk about the Italian study, yeah. the pro-GMO pro labeling? Yeah. Um, so this was one of the most surprising findings during what I would say is kind of like a lit review that I did of, of all of the research around um, 
consumer behavior, consumer choice, and, and genetic modification. And one of the studies that I came across, and granted it's a small study, um, was from uh, a region in Italy where the researchers decided to first evaluate people's attitudes around GMO, which was by and large reflective of the general public, which is largely anti-GM. Um, but then they tested this theory that genetic modification, the rejection of it, is mainly about access to information. And so what they decided to do was label foods, contain this contains GMOs. And they then tested whether or not people would be more likely to purchase that product. And what they found is that people were more likely to purchase the product that said contains GMO. Now, why would that be? There's actually some really great language in the report from the researchers that's like, just to clarify, this does not actually indicate anything different about the product, but to a consumer, if a company is willing to say this contains GMO, uh, it makes people feel at ease because they are in the driver's seat. They know what it is that they are buying. Uh, there is full transparency. They are give, empowered with that information. Um, I also think that there's this attitude that if someone's willing to tell you what's in it, that it can't be that bad or else they would try to hide it. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's just tons of interesting findings uh, along those lines. Cool. Anything else on control or should we move on to community? We can move on. And if people want to ask questions about it later, I'm happy to answer them. All right. Let's talk about community. Yeah. So prior to us all being on house arrest, um, we were actually already suffering from the highest rates of loneliness on record, um, globally, huge rates of, of, of loneliness, which is, you know, ironic in many ways, considering this is the era of uh, social connection, of social media. Um, and a lot of the big trends in food and lifestyle uh, over the last decade have been these efforts to reconnect people with what matters. Uh, and sometimes it's in ways that don't really work. Uh, sometimes uh, there's, you know, structures put in place that are that are helping us find our communities. So, for example, uh, for the book, I actually went to a vegan speed dating event in New York City. Um, it was super interesting to meet uh, these individuals who are trying to find uh, someone to love that had the same value system as them. Um, but it really took me down this path of exploring how diets have become. Uh, really kind of like the millennial form of religion for a lot of people, uh, a way to find others that have a similar value system. Um, and sometimes the desire for community is, is far more simple than that. It's especially right now in the midst of COVID, it's logging online for a cooking class. It's sharing recipes with other people. It's just finding ways to connect that feels real, that feels honest. Um, and that in many ways is the antithesis to a curated social media feed. Uh, people are learning that you can't create a real, lasting, uh, meaningful connection through social media. You have to look people in the eye. You need to support one another. You need to have creative exchanges. You need to pat one another on the back. Um, and food has been a great uh, mechanism for doing that up until this current moment. But I am expecting, um, especially restaurant culture, to come back uh, pretty strongly uh, after, well, after. Let me ask you, because in, in Generation Yum, you talked about the fact, I'm of course looking from the technology angle, yeah. right? like that people were using social media to brand themselves, right? Right, and that you know I'm taking pictures of my vegan meals to show that I'm a vegan, right? Yeah. Or yeah. that I'm keto, right? Yeah. And it was a way for me to kind of wave my flag and search for my community. Mm -hmm. How are you reconciling that with what you're saying about like more substantial relationships than just my cool Insta photos. 
Okay, so um, so this is actually part of, of what I do look at in the book. Um, some people are using food to connect with other people in person. So for example, shared community tables at restaurants, shared plates, um, a lot of different, uh, you know, the vegan speed dating, for example, are you meeting people in person? But a lot of this kind of connection community building has also happened in the virtual space, be it following an influencer who's like kind of like a wellness guru that for a lot of people creates that sense of connection um even though it's not really a real connection um in many ways it's a double-edged sword uh using food in this way for uh community building sometimes it fulfills us sometimes it really leaves us feeling quite empty um in this current moment that we're in though it's super interesting because prior to covid I genuinely believe that most of us have all used social media as a way to brag. It's a way, it's, it is self-promotion. That's really all it is. Um, now that we are all going through this moment of collective suffering and collective grief, uh, I think social media has become a friendlier place. I know that some people don't agree with me, um, but think about the weeks when quarantine began. What were the big trends? It was banana bread and babka and sourdough and people giving one another tips. We all of a sudden didn't really have anything to brag about. What were you gonna say? Ooh, I scored the last thing of Clorox wipes. I mean, like there really wasn't anything to promote other than your ability to perhaps share tips and tricks with other people. Um, I'm not terribly optimistic that that kind of friendliness is going to continue once we're out of this crisis, um, but it does show the, the potential here uh, on social media for kind of that more um, supportive community building. Um, but that's, that's by and large not exactly what's happened uh, in the food space up until now. Yeah, I was just as an aside, I was on a, on a call last night uh, with some folks on a board that I'm on, a nonprofit board, and we had our little Brady Bunch Zoom photo of all of our photos. And the executive director said, hey, this is gonna be a rough couple weeks. Let's just make sure that we reach out to each other on Zoom or what have you, we can't do it in person, just to look after each other, right? And I think that's a little bit of what you're talking about. So maybe can you kind of a little, talk a little bit about, uh, I don't know what the word is, the, the desperation, the loneliness, the despair, um, yeah. and some of those crazy numbers that you talk about in the book. Prior to COVID, uh, the former Surgeon General Vivek Murthy was already saying that loneliness was going to be the next health crisis after obesity. Um, loneliness has both mental and physical implications for our well-being. Uh, I think that this is going to be obviously another pandemic that is accelerated uh, considering the current situation that we are all in. But what better way to connect with people than food? Uh, and again, prior to this, like Canada had a whole campaign about eating with your neighbors. Um, the UK started, they hired a minister of loneliness. There are all of these different programs that are put in place that are trying to get people to sit back down with one another uh, and share a meal because it's such a great way of facilitating um, meaningful connection with others. Uh, I, I am still very optimistic about our ability to use food um, not just to connect with others online, but also to connect with our local community, with our local ag community, with our local restaurateurs, talent, neighbors, our hair, even if it's going to be online through uh, a way of connecting with our heritage, um, learning about ways of cooking that perhaps our grandparents or great grandparents took on. Um, you know, food is a magical thing. 
And I, I'm not sure that uh, there's enough conversation really about just how um, powerful food can be, uh, the food experience can be in returning us to and reminding us of the things that are core to our humanity. Uh, and I think in many ways, this, this moment of crisis is forcing people um, into that relationship. You know, I was on a call yesterday um, for the Smart Kitchen Summit, and we were talking about the fact that families are cooking uh, lunch together and eating lunch together at home. And are people really going to want to go back to eating like a, a granola bar at their desk after this? And in many ways, you know, there are there are positive things that are coming out of this experience, and a lot of it is grounded in in food and also our connection to nature. I don't want to interrupt. This has been fabulous flow and I don't want to interrupt, but we do have a couple of questions waiting. So I just want to sneak these in um, as we can here and there. So we have a question from Ken Hunt. He asked, based on what you've learned on GMO and insights around GMO, where do you think that will inform consumer knowledge, acceptance, caring about food from CRISPR genome editing and technology, same notions of control, or are there other nuances? Yes, Ken. Great, great question. So this is something that I have also been very interested in, uh, particularly over the last five years, right? As words like, or terms like synthetic biology and cellular agriculture and CRISPR um, started to show up more and more often. Um, And I think that if we just look at the non-GMO movement or really GM, let's just look at GM and the way that Monsanto uh, in particular introduced GM to the public versus the Impossible Burger, right? both of those products in, are, I use GM, um, but they're being uh, accepted in a completely different way. The public response is very different. Um, and that is because the approach of the company was also very different. Um, Impossible has been um, front and center this entire time saying, this is our product, here's what's in it, here's how we are creating these things in a lab, um, do you wanna learn more? Here's a Q&A with our founder. Um, it has been transparent, um, at least as transparent as, as it can be. Um, they have invited people along on the journey. There's something brave about putting out kind of like an initial version of a product and then following up with it. It makes people feel as though they are a part of this brand community. They are involved in that process. Um, they've asked for feedback. Uh, it is a completely different approach than putting something out into the market and saying, it's good for you, just trust us. Um, and when there is record low rates of trust in others in general, um, putting something out there and saying, just trust us, it's not going to work. Uh, and so, you know, I also, I think the other really great example here is Perfect Day. Um, they are using, um, synthetic ag to, uh, to create ice cream and milk. So they're actually genetically modifying yeast, which then create the, the casein protein, um, Rob, you might know the detail of this better, but they put out a limited edition run of their ice cream last year in San Francisco and it sold out in like three hours or something. (laughs) Um, So again, like my findings are not that people today are scared of science or don't trust scientists. They are scared of other people's intentions and they do not believe that companies or the government have their best interests in mind. And so I'll actually, I, I, I'm going to chime in here. You know, we've been talking about the fact that we need to get out ahead on CRISPR and have that dialogue and do the, the not a PR marketing blitz, but an authentic dialogue to really understand what is the appropriate use 
Jennifer Doudna has basically said, you know, the genie is out of the bottle. Uh, we need, and it's not going back. We're not, I don't know of a large scale conversation that is happening. I'm hoping that we can have that so that, that we can avoid the GMO debacle and not do a 2.0. The opportunity is there, but I've been hearing this about, we need to have this conversation for about five years and it's just, it's not coming about. Yeah. And I, I mean, Rob, to your point, you know, the, it's not like tech is going to slow down in terms of its, its integration and application in our food system. Um, so we collectively in the food and ag community um, need to be working together to approach the public in a way where people are not going to be scared but instead feel invited into the conversation. Um, eaters are a part of this ecosystem. No product or technology is worth, uh, is worth investing in, is worth applying, if the end eater doesn't want it, right? Because that whole ecosystem will just come to a halt without them. Uh, and so I think it is about thinking about your, your end consumer, your end eater as a critical part of your business plan. Right. Sarah, um, I, you were you were on such a roll. You were you were gonna throw Eve a question about that third element uh, of your research. So Eve, I'd I'd love for you to go back to that. Okay. We'll get back to questions as they come up. We got, okay. we got some good ones from some pretty uh, notable people too. So we'll, yes, we'll circle back on those. But so Eve, control community. Let's talk about purpose. Yes. Okay. All of us have a desire for a sense of meaning and purpose in our lives. Um, and this, this is very broad, right? By that, I don't mean that all of us need to feel like we're going out and saving the world. Um, in fact, what I, what I was able to find is that what's key to each of us creating a sense of purpose is A, engaging our bodies, um, using our physicality, our senses to create something tangible and shareable is very important. Um, hence why, as you've seen the rise of the digital age, you've also seen the rise of the DIY movement. Um, it makes a lot of sense to me that as all of us have been spending more time online, even during this crisis, what is it that was selling out? Everything to make bread, baby chicks, and seeds, right? People wanted to get outside. They wanted to start working with their hands in their kitchen, create something physical, tangible, something that they could watch and feel. Um, the, and the second part of this is nature. I honestly didn't understand the power of nature uh, to influence well-being until I wrote this book and did all this research. And I, it continues to actually be my, it's my favorite part of the book. It's my favorite part to write. It's my favorite part to research because I was just excited and dumbfounded and, um, and thrilled by the way that our bodies uh, as human beings are so innately and intricately tied to the land. Um, and it, it, it has an influence on well-being that goes so far beyond nutrient intake, um, but for our, our, our psychological well-being as well. Um, but again, you, when you look at food and lifestyle culture globally, um, with the introduction of technology, as people have become less and less attached to their physical bodies, um, we've seen an, a rising interest in food porn, right? It's those, or mukbang, people watching other people eat online. And usually um, that includes ASMR, which is audio meridian sensory, I forget what response. <laughs> um, those are the videos uh, that you see of something that's like bubbling or a, a close-up of like a molten chocolate cake or, or there's a microphone right by someone's mouth and you hear them slurping and chewing. Um, 
I didn't understand at first why that was uh, attractive for people, but it turns out it stimulates your gustatory and olfactory cortexes. Um, again, it's triggering something that's just core to being alive <laughs> uh, that is being deprived in, in our digital world. Um, we're also, again, seeing a lot of people investing their extra time um, on being outdoors, on creating something that's real. They can be like, hey, I made this loaf of bread check it out. Or even, I built this birdhouse. Um, and that's also why, you know, traditionally blue-collar blue jobs are now hip. Like, if you're a plumber, people are like, oh my god, you know how to do something. Like, <laughs> you have a skill set. Um, and it's it's for that reason as well that I think we're seeing, you know, now uh, an a uptick in the number of young farmers in America. And I will be very surprised if we do not see an even bigger jump in the post-COVID world with Gen Zers returning to the land. Yeah. Hey, Sarah, I want to, I want to bring you in on this. So we've been talking about the foodies mostly, but can we talk about the Aggies, right? And so we look at this hierarchy of needs, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. We talk, talk about control, community, and purpose. How do you look at the Aggie sense of control, community, and purpose? Yeah, it's a really fascinating lens to work from when you are evaluating the Ag community. I think you know, starting from that, that control element, funnily enough, so many of those things that consumers make consumers feel like they're out of control, farmers originally adopted to feel more in control. Right. Like GMOs, right, is all about, you know, if, if you can control a pest, right? The most common thing that corn is genetically modified for is for pest resistance. So if you can eliminate the risk that your corn is going to be attacked by, by a harmful insect, great that's so much more control to have than having to, you know, the alternative is farmers have to spend days and days, hundreds, if not thousands of hours out in the field, looking at individual plants, trying to just like guess and stay on top of every single, you know, outward sign. It's an incredible amount of work. Unknowns. Yeah. Yeah. And it takes an incredible amount of expertise and it just takes time and effort. Uh, and I think actually we see it in a lot of other ways. I mean, so many different things in agriculture are about uh, choices are driven by maintaining control. Uh, I think it's really easy actually to look at, at different choices that farmers make kind of across the spectrum of choices to make on a farm and realize that um, there's much more than economics influencing a decision. It's certainly not just, you know, return on investment. There's other things going into that and, and maintenance of control is a big one. I actually was just talking to a farmer uh, who actually grows citrus in in Arizona recently who was talking about how other farmers perceive the fact that he set up a direct-to-consumer produce stand uh, adjacent to his farm. And he was fascinated to see that despite the fact that kind of on the surface when he first would tell people about it like at farm shows or wherever, people would be like, wow, I really respect that you're out there face-to-face -face with the consumer like doing that good work. And then like they would kind of like turn to whoever else was in the conversation and say, like that's not really farming. Standing at a table isn't really farming though. So like, hmm. I, there's like this, right? He, he had come up against this sense of like, well, okay, so it's so both something that people think needs to be done, but they don't want to do it. They think it's like a diminutive activity. Why do they think it, it is like not as good, not as important as the other work that they're doing? And it's because, I mean, to him, his conclusion was they don't want to give up control. Hmm. Having to be face to face with your consumer, with your customer is you know, for everyone who went back to the farm or who went to the farm in the first place to be their own boss, the customer is always right. Hmm. 
you're not the boss of your customer. You have to be face to face with them and respond to their needs. And it's a negotiation. It's all these things that you're talking about, right? It's participation, it's transparency. When that gets taken away, that becomes very hard for people whose motivation to enter the field was to be their own boss, was to not have to answer to anyone, was to be able to get to make their own decisions and not have to take in other people's thoughts and feelings into account. That's um, so interesting. Cause yeah. And, and, and Rob, I know that you want to you get to this point, so apologies if I'm jumping there too soon. But uh, the current works, I published this book this, book this summer, and uh, meanwhile, while finishing the book, I launched a nonprofit and had a baby. I don't recommend doing all three at once. Um, but the, the, the nonprofit's called the Food for Climate League, and what we're doing is essentially using this structure of, of control and community and purpose and saying, listen, the current food and sustainability, uh, or food and climate narrative, we've gotten it all wrong as an industry. It's exclusionary, it's elitist, it's leaving a lot of people out of the conversation, um, farmers being a big, big part of that. Um, and our thesis is that sustainable behavior, sustainable ways of, of living and eating can meet our, our desire for control, for community, and for purpose. Um, and it's interesting hearing you say this because I have also had conversations with farmers who say, you know, I'm missing that kind of sense of community because I don't meet the people who I'm feeding uh, and I can't feed my neighbors. Uh, do you think that there's a way to reconcile that loss of control um, and that desire for community by, you know, in, in a shift, if, let's say, um, you know, as a society, we are going to have to reward and encourage um, the farming industry as a whole to take on new sustainable farming practices. Um, do you think that there's an incongruence there or is there kind of a resolution that you see? So I, I, I want to jump in here because, you know, um, the, the purpose, the mission of farmers is, has been really important. And, you, yeah. you know, you go and talk to farmers and they feel like they've been given a, a God-given skill yeah. to feed the world, to feed the country. Um, and I think if you look at that, the vitriol that comes from, uh, I don't know, foodies who don't understand farming, uh, there's been a shift. And where we, we have um, historically uh, put farmers on a pedestal for the service that they provided, now they're coming under attack. And I think a lot of them are really questioning, why is this happening? And then at the same time, foodies or those of us who eat food didn't really want to know where our food came from a decade ago. Now we want to know everything about our food. And we're in this awkward teenage transition of trying to get to transparency, right? And I think, you know, Sarah and Eve, I think the question is, and you're kind of alluding to this, is can we realign purpose and reestablish a community of foodies and Aggies around sustainability? Yeah, I, I'll say one thing, but and then I'm going to circle back around and, and we're going to ask some of these questions uh, from our great participants. Thank you guys for, for raising your hands. But um, yeah, Eve, to your question, I think that misalignment is a little deeper than we often want to talk about because I think it's a misalignment between what we want farmers to be mm -hmm. and what we think that farmers are, mm -hmm. which sounds like you're splitting hairs, right? But it actually is really important. So when you imagine like one out of every three people I've ever met wants to, or has some kind of fantasy of like becoming a farmer one day, of retiring to a farm, of starting a farm, of like, maybe one day I'll just quit my job and, and I'll farm. Yeah. Um, why? Why do you want to do that? Why is that part of your fantasy? It's because 
of frankly, all the things that you just said, um, because we, we crave to use our hands, we crave all these things, but also because in our, like in our American lore of, of who we are as a country and part of the American dream that involves farming is deeply seated in our ideas about individualism and self-reliance and, you know, destiny, self-destiny, mm. um, being able to not be dependent on other people, to be an entrepreneur, but not an entrepreneur that, you know, changes the world or builds big, build some huge project, just an entrepreneur who gets to make your own decisions in life, who doesn't have to answer to a boss, who doesn't have to constantly negotiate your position in the world uh, just to feed your family, mm-hmm. right? That's, that's something that in America we elevate. That's one of the reasons why farming is so attractive to so many people and is so you know, go to a baseball game anywhere in America and watch the video that plays during the national anthem. Every other image is going to be like of a wheat field or a tractor. Mm-hmm. The, the ideas about we have about agrarianism are in a lot, I think you could make a really good argument, are our national religion. Mm. Everything that we know about individualism and, uh, you know, the elevation of, of the individual is tied up in our ideas around farming and private property and, mm. and kind of ideas that we built America on, frankly. But what we want from farmers as a community, as foodies, as kind of this new world that we're building around sustainability is the opposite of that. Mm. We want someone who's deeply tied to every part of their community, who didn't choose to farm to be on their own or to like feel their own destiny. We want people who are so closely tied to their community that they'll have these personal relationships that they'll know what people want, that they'll adapt, that they'll hear the community when they say, you know, we hear you that, that this practice is good for you or it makes your life easier, but it's bad for our community. So we expect you to stop. And we expect you to be able, we expect to be able to hold you accountable to that because we have such a close personal relationship. And because, you know, we are both your customer, we are your neighbors, we are your like investors, maybe we are the partners you work with when you buy things, all of, when all of those things are true, um, you know, that creates a real, a reality for farmers that is the opposite of what a lot of people get into farming for. It's someone who's deeply connected, whose primary responsibility is social and cultural. And like the interdependence is so fundamental. Um, that, yeah, I think that's where it emanates from, right? Is that like, we think of farming and being a farmer as like this personally to our identity is like, it's this individualist thing that you, you know, it's destiny, it's in your blood. It's something that only you can do. But on the other hand, we want you to be deeply interconnected. And yeah, I think those collide in the, in the execution of agriculture and they create a lot of problems in the way that they misalign. So yeah. Let's let's circle back to that question, Eve, about like, so moving from that individuality into something more collective and really focus on because we haven't really talked about the Food for Climate League and we haven't talked about can we come together, Aggies and foodies, on a common purpose and create a community uh, around sustainability? Yeah, so the, the Food for Climate League, again, is this, this 501c3 nonprofit that I founded last year. Um, we have put together an amazing group of individuals uh, with a, a, a wide variety of experience in uh, the food and beverage and innovation and communication spaces um, who are super, super passionate about this topic. Um, I can now reveal that we are working with uh, with Sodexo and Unilever and Google uh, this fall on different innovation sprints, but essentially we're working to answer this question. Uh, 
So we're working right now on developing new ways of addressing food and the climate um, that are gonna ladder up to those core human needs of control, of community, and of purpose. Um, our theory as an organization is that by and large, um, the conversation that exists around food and climate, again, elitist, exclusionary, but it's also mainly only talking to people's sense of purpose. It's telling a lot of people that they have to give something up in order to do something good. Most people aren't gonna do that, which is why you have such a small subset of the population that's engaging uh, actively in the sustainable forms of eating. Um, more so, uh, moreover, they're not addressing the wider population. So we do see as an organization the ability for us to align um, the messaging because the sustainable ways of eating and growing food um, can meet those needs. So Sarah, as you were talking, um, I love your perspective on this. Um, I, what, I was, what I was thinking about is the messaging right now that's being explored um, by USFRA about sustainability, not in the ecosystem and communitarian aspect, but sustainability for your farm. How can you continue to farm independently and support your family? Um, and at the end of the day, right, the message is you gotta build up healthy soil. You have to be producing things that are going to have a great return for the marketplace. Um, you need to be growing things that are positively feeding the, the, the children and people of the world. Um, and I don't think that those are in direct conflict um, with the ways of eating, uh, ways of farming that the general public uh, desires, but we have the messaging all wrong. <laughs> Totally. Uh, and so I'm really excited to see uh, what comes out of our work this fall, but also where we as an organization can, can go in the years to come. Yeah. Uh, and I'll just, a, a shout out for USFRA. If you haven't seen it, go to YouTube and look at 30 Harvest. I never thought that I would tear up watching an agriculture YouTube <laughs> video, but basically it makes farmers and ranchers the superheroes of climate, uh, carbon sequestration and drawdown. Uh, it's definitely worth the five minutes of your time. Yeah. Sure, should we jump into Q&A? Yes, yes. I want to throw out this question from Chris Thon uh, from Bueller Curio CT. I, I'm very sorry if I mispronounced any or all of that. Uh, so he has a really interesting question. He actually has two, so I'll ask his second as a follow-up. But he talks about sharing food experiences as that kind of goes digital. Uh, it's become relatively easy to share visually how interesting and beautiful food can be. But mm -hmm. how do we digitally share how great or not food tastes or smells? What opportunity are there for startups and investors to digitize smell, taste, mouthfeel so that we can share this ultimately remotely? Yes. So, uh, can I jump in? Yeah. Uh, so on this one, um, Chris, so uh, two things. One is I saw something in Singapore and it was a university project where you could actually, I think it was a, a lemonade, where you could basically create a, a, a digital twin of a taste or smell of lemonade or something remotely. So you'd had to have two devices on opposite sides of the ocean, but then you could share that smell. Uh, I don't think we've gotten to taste, mouthfeel. Um, the other thing I was gonna say, we actually have made an investment in a company called uh, Gastrograph that is basically doing using artificial intelligence for flavor prediction. So if you are a CPG company trying to develop a, Chinese, a specific beverage for Chinese coastal female millennials, they will tell you this is the flavor profile most likely to be successful. 90% plus of all product um, launches in CPG fail. How can we use this as a way 
to improve that success rate um, just by using large data sets. So that's one opportunity that, that I thought I saw there. Yeah. So Rob, I think that you're referring to um, Professor Adrian I, can't, I can never remember how to pronounce his last name, Chiak. Um, I interviewed him for the book. He's in the book. So <laughs> apologies to the professor. Uh, but he is based in Singapore, and he's created um, a number of, of AI tools that are exploring um, taste and olfactory um, smells and, and senses. He, he even has an app that's called the Kissinger app. It's like a plug-in for your phone, uh, and you can kiss this uh, haptic, uh, I don't really know what it is. It's an add-on, but you can like make out with someone halfway around the world. It's super weird. Um, I think he was in part creating it for the PR uh, that was generated out of it. Um, but he is testing a number of things that actually, like he has sensors that you put on your tongue. Um, he has a, um, a system where they were trying to emit smells from your phone uh, from a chef in San Sebastian. Um, I do think that there is going to be an audience for this um, who wants to collectively experience uh, a, a culinary uh, endeavor. That said, I do think that there's a limit. Um, I think that as the AI avenues get more extreme um, and more immersive, there is also going to continue to be this return to what's real. Um, and I was having a conversation with someone yesterday about, you know, what is, what is flavor? Um, how do you introduce new flavors uh, and new experiences? And to me, you know, I, do, I don't think that we're all going to be sitting down to dinner eating a glass of wine that has been selected for our own individual palates. I don't know how fun that is. I think that that's a part, uh, I think it's taking out an element of the eating and dining experience that we innately find to be pleasurable, which is the sharing of something. Um, but if that AI technology is going to allow us to share in an experience with others, um, I think that it's definitely something that's gonna be generating interest. Let me uh, tag in Tim West. He has a question about, uh, please speak to the learning journey, which has led to a focus on global sustainability and our collective need to mitigate climate change. Uh, and then uh, kind of as an add on to that, what gives you hope related to climate change solutions? Uh, Rob, do you want me to go first on this? You go you're right ahead. Okay. Uh, we, Tim, you're right. We aren't the only ones who live on this planet. That's why I always, when people are like, we need to save the planet, what I always say is, no, Mother Earth is going to be fine. We are the ones that aren't going to be here. Um, and, you know, some people might be okay with that, uh, and some people aren't. Uh, now that I'm a mother, I definitely go in the bucket of people who, who aren't. Um, and, you know, I think that there is something uh, that's kind of beautiful, actually, about the fact that tackling the climate crisis is also... Uh, it also means that it's encouraging us to take on behaviors that are better for our well-being. And I don't think that I really understood that until uh, I did this deep dive for Hungry. Um, but just we can walk through just a few short examples of behaviors that people have taken on just during the, the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. Wasting less food. It creates a sense of control. It creates a sense of authority. We are um, so, you know, stretching what we have uh, at home, A, to not go to the grocery store that often, but also to save, um, to save money, to save uh, product, um, but it creates a sense of empowerment. That is the most effective thing that we can do to combat the climate crisis. The other thing that we're doing is we're reconnecting with 
what's local? What grows locally? What talent do we have locally? There's an exploration of the biodiversity of where we are. That is pleasurable and fulfilling to us on an emotional level. And yes, it's also really great for the planet. Same for spending time outside, learning to grow things. Um, even sticking your hands in, in rich soil, I learned, has, uh, it, it has the same impact as an antidepressant. Um, if you have healthy soil, there are, uh, it's called mycelium vacae um, mm -hmm. that's released. And, you know, it's really interesting to hear testaments from farmers about the difference in attitude if you're, you're working in a, a, a field with, with healthy soil versus non-healthy soil. Um, we evolved to live in harmony with this planet. And uh, it does make me hopeful because I think that the solutions on the eater side through food for addressing the climate crisis are not just good for our physical health. It's not just good for um, our ability to continue living on this planet. It's also good for our emotional well-being. And at this period in time, again, with the record high rates of depression, anxiety, loneliness, and stress, I see an avenue for encouraging these climate smart eating behaviors without even bringing up the climate, um, but that are addressing these emotional ailments head on. Yeah. I'm going to try to do the trifecta here and get Tim's question about hope related to climate solutions, Chris, Chris's question about bringing farmers into feeding 10 billion, and Ken's talking about feeding the world and can regenerative ag practices uh, reach mainstream consumers. We just concluded a, 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 a study for USFRA looking at how technology innovation and financial innovation uh, can, can help close the gap for climate smart agriculture. For those, I, let's not split hairs on regenerative versus climate smart. Climate smart agricultural practices have been accepted by USDA. I will tell you the science is solid. What's missing is locale specific production practice information, best yeah. practice information, but we're getting there. I Just yesterday, Google X just put out this mineral platform. We need to go connect, collect better data from the field and connect that with large data sets so that we can accelerate the solution. And then also the work that Eve's doing with the Food for Climate League, we need to message this out to CPGs, to producers, to consumers on why they should care. Why is what we're doing valuable? What farmers are doing is valuable to them and that we need to get aligned on that. And to, to Eve's point, you know, Ken, if you look, we're already wasting a third of the food that we produce, yeah. right? So there are ways that we can go make this, and we're going to be forced to make this happen. Um, Chris, you talked about there's only 5% extra arable land, but if we decrease the food production, uh, the food waste, we can use the, the land that we have. The other thing is we're continuing to get more and more productive on yield, as everybody knows. We need to balance that out with sustainability. So there's a way that I am optimistic. I mean, can you believe that there is actually a movie on soil health trending on Netflix. Five years ago, I would not have, again, it, yeah, it bashes conventional agriculture, but the reality is, is that people, soil is sexy, and that would not have been the case five years ago. Yes, snaps. <laughs> awesome. Well, Eve, I'm gonna push Ken's question back to you uh, just for our last couple of minutes yeah. to ask you, can regenerative ag practices, even organic feed the world and reach mainstream consumers? Uh, not whole food shoppers needs on price. Yes. 
Listen, there are a number of reasons why uh, regenerative organic produce uh, is priced the way that it is. And in large part, it's because we have a system that has encouraged it. That's rewarding farmers who are not uh, farming in that manner. Um, and I think that, you know, I honestly think that Rob could probably answer this more directly, but I can talk from the consumer behavior standpoint. Um, I have often heard from individuals in big food that, quote, poor people don't want to eat organic. This is not true. Um, and unfortunately, there actually isn't a ton of consumer interest data uh, of low-income uh, communities because, you know, those in the industry don't see those individuals as, as moving the needle in terms of sales. Um, but the evidence that is out there shows that uh, all, again, all of us doesn't have the same core human needs. All of us want to be safe. Uh, we want to live healthy lives. Um, and the reasons why uh, organic sales are kind of stable in some ways, I mean, it's still going up, but, but where they are is because that organic produce is inaccessible or unaffordable to so many different people. Um, part of, you know, I think my personal mission is, uh, through the Food for Climate League, one of my goals is to show how we can democratize the sustainable uh, food movement. Um, and I'm just going to give kind of, you know, a really uh, brief example. Um, most folks do not think of, um, of minorities as those who are leading the sustainable food movement in the U.S. Most of the campaigns and products are geared towards what I call the three W's, which is white, Western, and wealthy. Um, but if you look at uh, the percentage of vegan eaters in the U.S. It's 3% of Americans are vegans. When you look just at African Americans, it's 8%. African American community is leading the plant-based food movement, yet they are not receiving any attention from the industry. There is so much potential out there to be uh, engaging individuals who are outside that 3W demographic in this way of eating, um, but we need to make it accessible, we need to make it affordable, and we Above all else, we need to make the language and the messaging around this relevant to more people's ways of living. Absolutely. And I'll get off my soapbox. <laughs> <laughs> no, we love it. Uh, well, we are coming up on the end of our time here. We are so excited to, again, have Rob Trice and Eve Tro paul join us today. We want to offer both of you a big thank you. We also want to thank a couple of other people who made today's conversation possible, including iSelect Fund, uh, our partners, Benson Hill, a partner of the Community Foundation of Greater Memphis, Cushman and Wakefield's Commercial Advisors, EY, United Health, and Methodist Laboner Healthcare. Crusonia Conversations, I just want to let you guys know, are free to attend, but unfortunately not free to produce. So please consider donating to the Crusonia Fund. You can do that at crusoniaonthedelta.org, or you can click on the donation link in your follow-up email. If you're looking to revisit today's conversation or to keep the Crusonia conversation going, especially for folks who maybe didn't get your answers or your questions asked right there at the end, please follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, YouTube, and most importantly, we, Crusonia has an insanely active Slack channel. It is always hopping. I'm in there all the time. So if you have uh, other interesting questions and you wanna reconnect with our speakers, please head over to that Slack channel and make sure you become, stay a part of the conversation. Uh, we also invite you to tell us about what you liked and what you think could be improved about this presentation in our follow-up survey. Uh, and also register for our next Crusonia conversation, which will be held Wednesday, November 4th with chef educators Ken Rubin and Dan, Dan Merrick. 
You can register to attend that conversation at crusoniaonthedelta.org. Thank you so much again for joining us, everyone in the audience, as well as our two panelists, and we'll see you again in November.